This sermon was recorded at the Midtown Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. The scripture reading this morning is Isaiah 56, 9 through 57, 21. Isaiah chapter 56, verse 9 through chapter 57, 21. And that can be found on page 616 in the Black Bibles in your pews in front of you or under your chairs. All you beasts of the field come to devour. All you beasts in the forest. His watchmen are blind. They are without knowledge. They are all silent dogs. They cannot bark. Dreaming, lying down, loving to slumber. The dogs have a mighty appetite. They never have enough. But they are shepherds who have no understanding. They have all turned to their own way, each to his own gain, one and all. Come, they say, let me get wine. Let us fill ourselves with strong drink, and tomorrow will be like this day, great beyond measure. The righteous man perishes, and no one lays it to heart. Devout men are taken away, while no one understands. For the righteous man is taken away from calamity. He enters into peace. They rest in their beds, who walk in their uprightness. But you draw near, sons of the sorceress. Offspring of the adulterer and the loose woman, whom are you mocking? Against whom do you open your mouth wide and stick out your tongue? Are you not children of discretion, the offspring of deceit? You who burn with lust among the oaks under every green tree, who slaughter your children in the valleys under the clefts of the rocks? Among the smooth stones of the valley is your portion. They, they are your lot." To them you have poured out a drink offering. You have brought a grain offering. Shall I relent for these things? On a high and lofty mountain you have set your bed, and there you went up to offer sacrifice. Behind the door and the doorpost you have set up your memorial. For deserting me, you have uncovered your bed. You have gone up to it. You have made it wide, and you have made a covenant for yourself with them. You have loved their bed. You have looked on nakedness. You journeyed to the king with oil and multiplied your perfumes. You sent your envoys far off. You sent down even to Sheol. You were wearied with the length of your way, but you did not say it is hopeless. You found new life for your strength, and so you were not faint. Whom did you dread and fear so that you lied and did not remember me, did not lay it to heart? Have I not held my peace even for a long time, and you do not fear me? I will declare your righteousness and your deeds, but they will not profit you. When you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. The wind will carry them all off. A breath will take them away. But he who takes refuge in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain." And it shall be said, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstruction from my people's way. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly, and to revive the heart of the contrite. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry. For the spirit would grow faint before me and the breath of life that I made. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him, I hid my face, and was angry. But he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners. Creating the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Amen. Hey, good morning. It's good to be with you guys. Let's uh, pray and we'll jump into the text.
God, we thank you for your word. Thank you that your word uh, is able and effective to accomplish its purposes, your purposes. God, thank you for um, words that confront us. Thank you for words that bring us face to face with reality. Thank you that you love us enough to tell us the truth, to show us our need, to bring us face to face with uh, our dependence, our need, our brokenness, our sinfulness. And thank you for the word of grace that comes, the word of hope that comes. Thank you for your abundant mercy. God, I ask this morning as we open the word together, would you give us grace to receive it? God, would you confront our hearts, each and every one of us? Spirit of God, I ask that you would move in this room and um, speak. Show us places where we are prone to run after other things, give allegiance to other things, worship other things, give our affections away, give our longings away, God. And would you bring us low that we might find your grace there and your peace there and your comfort there? God, would you give us a spirit of revelation? Would you take from that which belongs to you and make it known to us? Would you do this for your glory? We ask in Jesus' name, amen. So we find ourselves at the uh, end of this chapter we've been in for the last couple weeks together. Uh, Isaiah 56, if, if you haven't been with us, is a, 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 the beginning of a section within the book of Isaiah that's written to a community in transition or in between. They've received God's promises. They've received this um, declaration that God is going to save them and work uh, a great and mighty salvation. And yet they are waiting. They're waiting for God to come and make all things new. They find themselves in this in-between time. And what we've seen in the last couple of weeks as we looked at the first eight verses of this chapter is God has demonstrated that he desires his people to pursue him in wholehearted obedience by laying hold of his ways. We see in verse one, justice and his person, righteousness. This is, this is what God desires for his people. And then he lays out these unbelievable and beautiful promises, even to those that are, find themselves on the farthest reaches of those that might believe that they are disqualified from his purposes outside of his reach. And we get these amazing promises to all and any who would call upon the name of the Lord and join themselves to him by faith. We get to these verses and they are like a ice bath to us. We see in the first eight verses these, this glorious ideal of the people of God pursuing him in justice and in righteousness. And in this section, we turn and see the reality. You see, this community had not yet been uh, experienced the full measure of God's grace at work in them. There was still sin and brokenness and wickedness at work in them, idolatry. And these verses hit them in the face like an, a cup of cold water. Maybe a little bit like I imagine I felt last night when I walked off the plane at 9 p.m. having left my family at 75 degrees poolside in Florida and stepped off the plane to 18 degrees. Uh, not a lot of fun. That's what these chapters hit us like. It's this stark contrast to this ideal that we've seen in the last several verses. 
we're now put face to face with the reality of God's people, where they are at this moment. And to this situation, the prophet Isaiah speaks, they were marked by sin, they're marked by waywardness, and the Lord is yet to fully work to bring them to a complete understanding of their need for his grace and his mercy. We find that the people are still bent on their self-saving strategies. There's this longing they feel, this need they feel, this desperation they feel, and they know they need to be saved, but they are running to find salvation anywhere else other than God, to prop themselves up and to keep them from experiencing the uncertainty and the uncomfort that they need salvation. Yet what we find in this passage isn't just this confrontation to the reality of God's people. We see this beautiful picture that God is unwilling to leave them there. He is unwilling to leave them in this place. Into this moment, what we see in this passage is a word of confrontation and a word of hope. The state of the people is not what God desired, yet he would not leave them there. What we're gonna see in this passage is this remarkable commitment that God has to bring his people face to face with their need. You see, what we've seen a lot in the book of Isaiah is you and I, we have these places of need in our lives. We're weak, we're broken, we're sinful. We need something to save us. We don't like that feeling. We don't like being in a place of need. And so what we do is we run around and we prop all of these other things up to try to support us. And what we're gonna see in this passage and we see time and time again throughout the scripture is God loves you enough to kick all of those things out. Even if it means you have to fall and bloody your face on the ground so that you will come face to face with your desperation, your need, the place of what is most real about you, which is your need for him. We're gonna see that in this passage. And so what I wanna do this morning is simply look at two things. We'll look at two things from this text. First, we'll look at the state of the people. The state of the people as Isaiah lays it out here in this passage. And then what we'll look at is the promise of God in response to this. The promise of what God is going to do. So if you have your Bibles, let's look at Isaiah 56 verse 9. It's on 616 if you're using one of those pew Bibles. Isaiah starts this indictment of the people in, with two things. The first thing he does, he looks at the leaders of the people of Israel. He starts with a confrontation about the leaders in chapter 56, verses 9 to 12. The first portrait as he shows the state of the people is to look at the leaders. He begins here, and these leaders had willfully and fully abandoned their positions of leadership, caring nothing for the people that they were called to lead and only for themselves. What we find, if you look at verse nine, I find this remarkable, is that God does not speak to the people. He speaks to the beasts of the field. And he says, hey, listen, pay attention beasts of the field, all those who find themselves in the forest, I have a table set for you. Come and eat. This is a remarkable statement of what God is going to do in judgment to his people. He's saying they are, they find themselves in a place of sinfulness, in a place of hardness of heart, in a place of dullness, in a place of idolatry, in a place of harlotry. And because of that, I am going to bring judgment against them and chasten them. So the means that I'm going to do that, beasts of the field, listen to my voice. Come, I've got a table set. Come and devour, we see here. The prophet begins the call to these beasts to come and eat. 
It's a call to the nations of the earth we find in the context to come and have an open feast against God's people because of their sinfulness. We've seen this again and again through the book of Isaiah that in the places where God's people are hardened against him, hardened against his ways, he will raise up opposition against them to stand in their way, to bring them face to face with their need. We've seen it with Assyria. We see it with Babylon. It's what God did again and again and again for his people. This is a jarring transition again from the promises that came before. But we see here that the leaders of the people are called to accounts on several fronts. We see in verse 10 that they're blind. They're mute dogs. They're greedy. They've turned to their own ways. What we see here is not a picture of ineffective leadership. He's not talking about they, did, they had bad policy or they made some bad decisions. What he's saying is these people who had been entrusted to watch over, the, over God's people had turned their backs on their stewardship. And in every place, they took their places of wealth and resource and power to take for themselves and serve their own selfish desires. The picture is pretty bleak. He says, what you're doing is it expresses itself in two ways. You guys are lazy, meaning you sleep all day. This picture of a dog that I had somebody come up to me after the 8.30 and say, I didn't know my dog was in the Bible. <laughs> Sleeps all day, doesn't bark, and rolls over to get more and is never satisfied. This is the picture that he presses face to face and says, leaders of the people, you have taken this stewardship and this task that was, has been given to you and you lounge back all day long and you take and you take and you take. So much so we see in verse 12, this highly ironic statement from their mouths. They say to one another, hey, come, let's have a, let's have a party. Let's drink together and not stop drinking until we have our full fill. And guess what? We're gonna do it again tomorrow. And it will be just like it is today, only better. Now the irony of this is these leaders are looking at each other going, hey, let's have a party today and tomorrow and it will be better. And then the next day and it will be better. And the next day and it will be better. All the while, they don't know that God is calling the beasts of the field to have the real party, to come to the real feast, that judgment is on the doorstep for them. So he begins with this indictment of the leaders. Then he turns in chapter 57 and moves from the leaders in specific to the people on the whole. He begins to speak to the whole of the people and indict them for their idolatry, their harlotry, their pursuit of other gods. And I don't have time to press into it, but what I want you to do is I want you to go maybe this afternoon, maybe sometime this week, reread this section, the first 13 verses of Isaiah 57 and feel how frantic it is. The pace of it is sporadic and frantic and frenzied. One minute you're like in a valley uh, looking for stones to be your portion. The next minute you're on top of a mountain giving sacrifices. One minute you're at a fertility cult. The next second you're at a child sacrifice. And what Isaiah is doing in language is embodying what he's going to get to in verse 21, where he says the wicked are like a storm that cannot stop. They've got this raging storm inside them that will not settle down. They're frantic, they're frenetic. And even in the pace that Isaiah lays out in this indictment, he moves from one thing to the next, to the next, to the next. Sentence after sentence, we're to feel how sporadic this is and the exhausting nature of pursuing other gods. That's what we're supposed to feel when we read this. Like this is exhausting. This is 
labor. And he moves through this in those verses showing how they're running after these other gods and they can't get enough. And he breaks in in verse 10 with the real indictment. Here he says, look at, look at this with me. You were wearied with the length of your way. So he lays out all of these things. You were doing this. You were doing this. You were doing this. You were running to the mountains. You were going into the valleys. You were uh, following perverseness. You were offering your children. You were going all over these places to find some form of hope and stability, hoping that it would provide for you something that you needed. And he says, and you knew it wasn't working and you knew it was exhausting you. But the problem is you did not look at it and say, this is hopeless. You didn't look at it and say, this way doesn't get me what I want. This way does not satisfy me. This way doesn't ultimately get me the things that I hoped it would get me. This is front and center, the futility of the pursuit of sin put on display for us all. And we all know this place, right? The thing that you were looking to, to right the wrong in your soul, to settle you down for a minute, to find some peace, to calm the storm that goes on inside of you. And when you got it, it didn't work. You didn't look at it and go, oh man, that was finally it. That storm on the inside finally went away. That longing was satisfied. That hope was fulfilled. He says you were wearied with it, but you didn't look at it and say you were hopeless. What did you do? Isaiah says you doubled down. You tried harder. You went further in that way. You laid hold of it again. You said, it's only gonna be the next one. That one wasn't it. That was the stepping stone to the next one. So maybe it's the next fill in the blank. The thing that you thought would calm the storm inside or settle the anxiety or alleviate the fear or take away the shame or the guilt. And we all do this. We all know this place. We all know this place where we are wearied with the pursuit and we don't look at it and say it's hopeless. We go, I'm gonna find new life. I'm gonna find new strength. That's what he means there is you doubled down. Now, I want you to hear something in this. It's a, it's a really well-known verse from Isaiah 40, probably one of the most often quoted verses in the scriptures. So you didn't even have to be with us when we preached Isaiah 40 to know this verse. This is profoundly ironic language because earlier in Isaiah 40, God laid out the way to find true strength and renewal when we got to the end of ourself. He says, those that wait on the Lord, renew their strength. They run, they don't get weary, they walk, they don't faint. Here he says, you got face to face with the hopelessness and the weariness of running in your own ways. But you didn't open your hands and wait on me. You just tried harder. You just doubled down on the thing. You looked for the next fulfillment. You said, it's gonna be that thing down there. I'll pick myself up, renew my own strength and go in that way. And he says, it's a fool's errand. It is futile and hopeless. The Lord then turns and closes this indictment, demonstrating that he had been silent for a long time. Look with me at verse 11. He says, whom did you dread and whom did you fear so that you lied and did not remember me or lay it to heart? He asks him a question. Have I not held my peace for a long time and you don't fear me? What God is putting in front of them there is what we'll see in the New Testament, the reality that God suffers long with his people. 
so that they might have time to repent? The problem is we often interpret the patience of God as his approval or the reality that he doesn't see, not as his insane kindness toward us, ludicrous kindness toward us, giving us time to turn our hearts back to him. That's what Paul will hit in Romans chapter two. The kindness of the Lord was meant to lead you to repentance. But he says here, I was patient and you didn't fear me. You misinterpreted my patience. What, what you deserved in the moment that you sinned was my judgment immediately. But I didn't, I held back, I was patient. Was I not quiet and patient for a long time? The Lord says in verse 11, yet in this place, look at verse 12, he's gonna declare their righteousness and their deeds, but that's not a good thing. He says, they're not gonna profit you. What I'm gonna do is I'm gonna openly declare your real righteousness. And that's, there's, there's a sarcastic tone here. He's saying, I'm gonna show you for what you are and it will not bring profit to you. When you cry out, let the collection of idols deliver you. The wind will carry them all off. The breath will take them away. The final statement of this, as we move and turn, is a promise to the ones who take refuge in God at the end of verse 13. Before we get to the promise, I wanna just do something really quickly and highlight a couple aspects of things we see about sin from this passage that I think are really important for us to look at, important for us to come face to face with. And I, I've asked all week for us to all have the grace to ask the Spirit of God to convict us, highlight us individually. One of the things I wanna just give two encouragements about. Number one, if you read this and you're, because you, you, you don't connect with the idolatry language or the harlotry language or the running around from top of the mountain to the stone beds at the bottom of the river, you don't connect with that, you might be quick to go, well, this isn't talking about me could I invite you to ask the spirit of God right now to just go, God, would you speak to me? Would you speak to me, highlight to me places in my own life where I run after other things? Second thing, encouragement that I've had because there, I can't tell you how many times I've sat in, in services where we talk about sin and repentance or things like that. And my first response, I feel ashamed to even say this is, oh, I'm really glad this person needs to hear that. If you are in the room and you think, oh good, this person needs to hear that thing, maybe in that spot, turn it back on yourself again. Ask the spirit of God to highlight to you places in your life where he would call you uh, to take a look at where you're running after other things. So the things I want us to see from this, this morning as it pertains to sin are two things. There's probably a lot more that we could do here, but two things that I think are really important. The first is in both portraits, both to the leaders and to the people, the underlying nature of this has to do with longing. I think we have to come face to face with the reality that the language about sin and how these people are pursuing it has to do with aching and longing that they're seeking to find fulfillment for in other ways. The leaders are abdicating and self-indulgent. They're taking and filling themselves and inebriating themselves, drinking and causing feasts to happen. They're trying to fulfill some longing. And the people, you see the language of it again and again, they're burning with lust. They're loving these ways. They love to look on these other perverse things. It's all about longing. And at the heart of the biblical portrait of sin 
is a problem of what we give our affections to. See, you and I were created in the image of God, which means we were created to have communion with him and in communion with him find fulfillment. And there is a longing inside of each and every one of us that we cannot satisfy with the things of this world. And though we run after uh, other things and need to repent for them, you cannot repent away that longing. You can't repent away that longing. That longing is hardwired into you. And you and I run after other things to try to fulfill it. And that is sinful. But the longing itself is evidence that we were created for something deeper. Relationship with God himself. At the heart of sin, the sin problem is the reality of our longing our affections, our desires, the things that are actually put in us to have fulfillment. We just run and try to have them elsewhere in places that are less than fulfilling. That's the first thing I want us to see. The second thing that I want us to see is all of the language about idolatry here has to do with allegiance and worship. And the reason I'm saying that is I think it's really hard for us sometimes as 21st century Westerners to connect with the language of idolatry. I don't imagine that many of us have like little totems in our home or are going up on hilltops and sacrificing things to, to like appease a God, right? So we have a hard time like integrating or ingesting the confrontations about idolatry. But what I want to do is just lay out a couple things that I've, I've grappled with in the last several months, even when we were preaching through the earlier parts of Isaiah, or we're being confronted with idols all over the place. Idolatry at its heart is simply, what do you give your allegiance to, to make you okay? What do you give your allegiance to, to make you okay? What do you give your worship to? to make you okay. And that could be one of the ways that you can look at that. There's a whole set of questions you could ask yourself. You could say, what am I afraid of? What am I afraid of? Where are my fears? And then what do I think will make me okay in the place where I feel those? What do I think? And not the answer that you're supposed to give. Look at what ruminates in your mind when you feel that storm that we see here that will not be quieted, when you spend time telling other people, uh, having conversations with other people or have in your mind or imagining if I only had this, I would be okay. Those are the places that we run to in an idolatrous way. We, we take these on as society as well. I've, I've had this, uh, I don't know if it's a funny thought. Maybe it'll be like an indicting thought. Um, I can't help it. I spent a lot of time on a plane yesterday and I get really overwhelmed with the um, incessant value or the transcendent value of safety that we have taken on as a culture. Right? So like everything, every go, go when you're watching the game tonight, watch 95% of the commercials will be about what they're doing to make you feel safe. When I'm on the airplane, all of these things to make me feel safe or to do all these things, we come up to up face to face against this everywhere. And I've got a little bit of a problem with it. I tell my kids this from time to time. Maybe this makes me a really odd father. I'll look at my kids and I'll go, every commercial you watch makes you believe that it is someone's responsibility to make you feel safe. Every place you go into makes you believe that it is someone's responsibility to make you feel safe. And I'm not saying that that's a problem. It's only a problem if it becomes the transcendent value. Because I'll also tell them, here's the rub. If you've been told that, 
from the day you were born. What's gonna happen when the God of the universe calls you to follow him and take up a cross and die and give your life away? And he isn't necessarily going to promote that as value number one. Value number one is gonna be obedience and devotion and allegiance to him, no matter what, no matter the cost, what is gonna go on inside their internal being when that call comes face to face with the visceral thing that we have been told from day one? What's gonna happen there? We could go on and on about those with places of comfort, right? Places of it's my right to experience comfort in these ways. Those places we have to do excavating work in our soul, partnering with the spirit of God, asking him to illuminate them, show us what they are and come face to face with them that we might go, oh no, no, no. We're a lot more like these people than we care to believe. We're running after other things, loving them, burning for them, wanting to do that before them to find fulfillment and satisfaction there. But God doesn't leave us there. This is the good news that we have in this scripture as well. The scripture ends with a wonderful call that is God's promise in the midst of that. The turn here in verse 14, again, harkens back to the language of Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40 is an essential background passage for this whole passage. It will be said of the people, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstruction from my people's way. Hey, side note here. The main obstruction from the people's way of experiencing God's forgiveness here is the people. It isn't some circumstance. It's not some outside thing. The main obstruction here that needs to be torn down is the people's incessant running after strategies that try to make them okay. That's what needs to be torn down. But build up, God says, prepare the way, remove every obstruction from my people. Why? Because, says the Lord, the one who is high and lifted up, the one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, the one who is transcendent, who there is no one like him, who is majestic and glorious and beautiful in all of his splendor and majesty. There's nobody like him. This God says something. I dwell in the high and the holy place where no one can be alone, transcendent, far above everything. And he says, I also dwell with the one who is contrite and a lowly spirit. I love this. In the context contrite, this is a picture of God's transcendence. That there is no one like him. And he dwells with those who are broken. Contrite here doesn't mean sad, it means crushed. He says, I, do, I dwell with those that are crushed, that are pressed down, that are pushed low. I come close to those. I come close to the ones who are broken and in need and desperate. Even when, here's the unbelievable reality, even when from the passage, even when God has done the crushing, 
He loves his people so much that when we run after other things and we find ourselves incessantly running to fulfill ourselves and to prop ourselves up and to keep ourselves from feeling the pain of our longing and our aching, when we run after other gods, he will crush us so that he can dwell with us in the place of being contrite and lowly of heart. I love this promise because it says that God doesn't dwell, um, he doesn't dwell with the proud. He doesn't dwell with the wealthy. He doesn't dwell with the ones with the best resume. He doesn't dwell with the one with the most accolades. He dwells with the lowly, the humble, the ones that have come face to face with their need and have no other option. The good news is we can all experience that. We can all experience that. This is what the New Testament would go on to say is being poor in spirit. It means that you come to a place of experiencing the grandeur of who God is, his glory, his worth, his majesty, and you then also come face to face with the reality that you are low, that there's nothing you could do to bridge the gap between his transcendence and the place where you are. Both just in how you're made, you can't reach high enough, you can't jump high enough, you can't do enough like good things, and in the reality that you've sinned and that you have run after other things and in your waywardness and in your brokenness have pursued a way that has fallen short of his glory. That feeling is what it means to be contrite. When you experience the gap between God's glory and our sinfulness. Our response there to go low, to be humble, to posture ourselves in humility and brokenness is what it means to be contrite. And the promise of God to those people is that he will dwell with you. He turns and he says, I love this in verse 16. I won't contend forever. I won't always be angry, meaning I'll provide a way for my anger to be appeased and I will not always contend with my people. I won't always be angry with them. If the spirit would grow faint before me in the breath of life that I made, because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him. I hid my face. I was angry. He went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. But God says, verse 18, I have seen his ways and I will heal him. I will lead him. I will restore him comfort to him and to his mourners. And I will create fruit from the lips, God says. This is remarkable because what God does in this moment is declare the truth of the thing that you and I need the most. He says, you ran in your own way. You were wearied out by it. You knew you were wearied out by it. You didn't look at the weariness of it and the futility of it and say, this is hopeless and stop and turn to me. You just kept going in it. I was angry, so I hid my face. However, I will not stay there forever. I will make a way. And what we see in this promise is from the reality of our sinfulness and God's grace, what we see here is that God has to work. He has to. He has to work. You can't come face to face with your need for him to work unless he works. You can't come face to face with your brokenness, your contrition, your lowliness, your desperation. You can't even see it unless he lets you see it. 
unless he moves in your heart and your soul and gives you eyes to see it. He says, I did all these things and they kept backsliding. I even hid myself from them and they kept backsliding. But I will look upon them and I will heal them, God says. This is the unbelievable message of the gospel that you and I could do absolutely and utterly nothing to merit God's favor toward us. And for those of you that hear my voice and are a Christian, the very fact that you can see even a portion of your sinfulness and your need is evidence of God's grace in your life. It is evidence that his spirit has breathed into you and awakened you from death and given you life that you could see your own need for him. The very fact that you aren't running headlong into sin today, backsliding, hating him, pursuing the the most perverse forms of idolatry that you could imagine is because he had mercy on you. He had mercy on me. The only way that I can even see my need is that he worked it in me. And he made a way for us to find peace. What we see at the end of this, this statement that there is no peace for the wicked is maybe to me one of the scariest statements in the Bible. He said, the wicked, they're like a tossing sea. They can't ever, 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 ever find peace. They just rage and storm. And it's internally, they storm. And externally, they create storms. There's anxiety and fear and shame. And God made a way for us to experience his peace. He says, peace to those that are near, peace to those that are far off. And he did it through his son, Jesus Christ, by sending him, taking on our frame, walking as a man, living a life of perfection, perfect obedience to God. You want to look at Isaiah 56, one, a person that walks in justice and in righteousness, Jesus Christ embodied that in his life, fulfilling a way of justice, fulfilling a way of righteousness. He lived perfect in perfect obedience and submission to the Father, so much so that he walked the way of submission to the point of death, where he died the death that you and I deserved. Isaiah 53 uses the same word that we get here for contrite. He was crushed for your transgressions, for my iniquities. He was crushed so that by faith in him, we might have peace with God. If you believe that this morning, you're a Christian, I want to invite you to come and delight in and joy in and rejoice in the peace of God made known in Christ. We do that by coming to the table of the Lord together. The way we take communion at Redeemer Fellowship is you tear a piece of the bread, dip it in the cup. We've got wine in the stoneware, juice in the glassware. We'll have servers in the front, middle, and up in the balcony. And a single serve that's gluten-free to my right, your left. If you don't put your faith in Jesus this morning, I I wanna invite you. Invite you to the reality And I I, want to actually speak directly to you. We're really, really glad you're here this morning. The scripture speaks to where you are. I know it, that you do not feel peace. There's no peace. There's a storm. There's a storm on the inside and you're running to try to soften it and settle it down. And you are wearied in your way. You're wearied in it. It doesn't satisfy. It doesn't do the trick. It doesn't bring the level of storminess down. It may for a second, but you wake up in the morning and it's gone. And I want to plead with you 
there is a way for you to experience the peace of God. There is a way for you to experience the peace of God. It is through Jesus Christ alone. And you can lay hold of him by faith this morning. You can believe on him. You can look at him and say, all of my waywardness, he took upon himself that I might have life in him. And you can receive him this morning. If you don't receive him this morning, don't come and take this meal with us. It, it doesn't afford you anything before God. Um, we would plead with you to take Jesus this morning. Take Jesus this morning. But if you aren't, stay in your seat. We have prayers um, printed on cards that you can find in the back of the seat in front of you that might help you pray, might help you grapple with what it would look like to um, submit your life to God this morning. But don't come and take this meal. And I'm gonna pray for us now and those who are partaking of communion will come when you're ready. God, thank you this morning that you have given us grace in Christ Jesus. God, I wanna thank you that um, your word declares that you are high and lofty and it declares that you are with the broken, the contrite, the lowly. And God, we say that every part of our salvation is a gift that we receive. And so even this morning, I ask that you would give us more ability together as your people to embrace our contrition, to embrace our neediness, to embrace our lowliness and to call out to you for more mercy, more grace, more peace, more life, would you feed us and nourish us with your goodness this morning? God, would you, the transcendent one, would you be pleased this morning to condescend and revive our hearts in the place of contrition and lowliness? It's what you promised to do. It's what you love to do. So would you make good on your promises this morning in our midst we ask, even as we come and celebrate the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ, would you nourish us and feed us by faith? Revive us, God, in our hearts and our minds and our affections. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.